A quick note, this is a 10-part chronological docuseries. We recommend starting at Chapter 1. And for the best immersive listening experience, headphones are suggested. Imagine for a moment the last eight years of your own life. How much has happened? How much has changed? Where have you been? What have you done? What about your family? Your kids? Imagine each of those nearly 3,000 days. Now imagine you spent that entire time imprisoned in a war camp, constantly fighting off death, having committed no crime at all. Would you have the willpower to survive? Would you have the physical or mental endurance? Would you have the honor to refuse going home early in order to remain in solitude with your country and your fellow prisoner? Imagine you were an American POW in North Vietnam, starving, beaten, confused. Would you still have hope? Somehow, in 1973, our heroes still did. That year, the brotherhood among American prisoners of war in North Vietnam was tighter than ever. Post-Sante raid, they were all in the Hanoi Hilton, in tight quarters, with relationships and love as close as family members. Everett Alvarez, eight years into captivity that year, remembers the end feeling closer. By that time, we were being treated well in 72. We were living in larger groups. Red McDaniel, six years into his, recalls as well. I had absolute blind faith my country's coming to get me. But would they really be released? Was going home a reality? Or would the enemy, who followed no rules, grow tired of the seemingly endless negotiations and simply execute the POWs. In this episode, our story comes to a close. Created in honor of Ross Perot Sr., with additional support from In-N-Out Burger, proud to support veterans and their families, from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library, in partnership with Foundwave Productions, this is the season finale of Captured, Shot Down in Vietnam. It seems now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. But it is increasingly clear to this reporter that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. In December of 1972, the B-52 story coming. You know, the elections were coming up. Nixon, we heard, was, uh, was re-elected in the fall, and then the bombing really started. It was the first air activity we'd had for 
some three years, because in 1968, President Johnson stopped the bombing of North Vietnam north of the 20th parallel. Here's our show's historian and author, Alvin Townley, again. America tried to negotiate out of Vietnam almost from the time it started under the Johnson administration after the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. No one ever really made it very far because no one would agree to any preconditions. During his first weeks and even months in office, President Nixon was optimistic about being able to end the war quickly because he assumed that the North Vietnamese also wanted peace and would agree to negotiate peace terms that were acceptable and honorable for both sides. Only slowly and painfully did President Nixon and Henry Kissinger realize that North Vietnam had no interest in negotiating. The North Vietnamese not only demanded what amounted to an unconditional American surrender, but insisted that the American government topple the South Vietnamese government as it withdrew, nor would the North agree to the return of American POWs, nor an accounting for those missing in action. We will not be blackmailed into an agreement. We will not be stampeded into an agreement. And if I may say so, we will not be charmed into an agreement until its conditions are right. The North Vietnamese didn't really want to negotiate because they felt they were winning. They were in it for the long haul, and they were um, just not going to negotiate away away their goals. And there were a lot of North Vietnamese dying, and they were invested in this, this war. And so when they did actually sit down to talk, there was a ridiculous exchange about what the shape of the table was going to be. The North Vietnamese and NLF preferred a round table to symbolize equality and create a more inclusive atmosphere, while the United States and South Vietnam wanted a rectangular table to reflect division, better representing the realities on the ground. By that time, I realized, others perhaps, that the only way we were going to get out of there was to force the North Vietnamese to come to the truce talks and stop the silliness of what was going on in Paris with the round table and this and that and the demands and who could sit where. A compromise was eventually reached, and the table was set up in a horseshoe shape. But... Things like that just, uh, I think, let everybody know that there wasn't a real negotiation happening. I mean, it was just ridiculous. As the war waged on the ground and in the air over Vietnam, the negotiations in Paris were repeatedly started and stopped and started again because the North Vietnamese negotiators proved to be intractable adversaries and finding common ground was anything but easy. Between 1969 and 1973, President Nixon delivered 14 long and detailed, nationally televised primetime speeches to the American people on Vietnam. In the third of those speeches, on December 15, 1969, near the end of his first year in office, the president reported no progress on the negotiating front for over a month. Four months later, on April 20, 1970, in his fourth address, he echoed those same sentiments. No progress has taken place on the negotiating front, he said. On January 25, 1972, in his eighth speech, the president outlined the elements of the numerous proposals the United States had made during these negotiations, only to see them repeatedly rejected by North Vietnam. 
Dr. Henry Kissinger and Hanoi's Lee Duck Toe have closed shop on their private negotiations to reach a ceasefire in the Vietnam War. So far, what they have to say in public about those talks does not indicate that a ceasefire is ready to be declared. Dr. Kissinger will report to President Nixon first thing tomorrow morning upon arrival in Washington from Paris. A North Vietnamese source would only say about the talks, things don't look so good. Following the breakdown of peace talks with North Vietnam just a few days earlier, President Richard Nixon announced the beginning of a massive strategic bombing campaign to break the stalemate. Over the next two weeks, over 20,000 tons of bombs were dropped on the cities of Hanoi and Haiphong. The bombing increased. Here again is the writer of the captured exhibit and former President Nixon aide, Bob Bostock. In December of 1972, Nixon unleashed the biggest bombing campaign of the war on the North. And at the Hanoi Hilton and other camps around Hanoi, you know, he was determined to find a negotiated end, but he was not reluctant to use military power to prod the North Vietnamese when they would be intransigent. A bombing operation called Linebacker 2, where American B-52s heavily bombed North Vietnam and Hanoi. In the city and around the city, and, you know, this continuous bombing. The B-52s would come all night. The fighter bombers would come during the day, and it just continued, continued. And there was a times when the bombs fell pretty close to the Hanoi Hilton. Maybe not by design, but it shook things up. There was one night in, the, in Linebacker 2 where out of that one window up high in one of these big cells, I could look out at a section and I saw counted 11 SAM surface-to-air missiles go up into the clouds. I counted 11 SAMs. It continued and continued, and I knew, hey, th this thing's not going to end in until the Vietnamese agree, and Nixon's not going to stop until they do. United States Military Command has acknowledged the loss of two more B-52s in the North Vietnam bombing missions. This brings to 10 the number of the giant bombers downed by North Vietnamese anti-aircraft fire since Monday. Nixon was our hero. We were all championing for him because when Nixon was elected, we felt that he'd, the war would end soon. It didn't happen as quickly as we thought. I think the American people kind of gave up on the war. They didn't have the support that they needed to provide the impetus to end the war. And so we uh, just, we felt that it was never gonna happen, but when B-52s came, we felt the end was near. In the following December 1972 recording, Nixon and Kissinger discussed the North Vietnamese reaction to the bombing. The guys who are now saying, well, why do we do it with B-52s? The point is that, as we know, we couldn't do it with anything for B-52s because, goddammit, there's nothing else that can fly at this time of year. Mr. President, within 10 days, you got these guys to the table, which no other method could have done. Well, the main thing now, Henry, is that we have to pull this off. <laughs> it's going to be tough pity. 
assuming we go forward with our plan, just talking to the North, my view is we talk and we settle, right? With that. The relentless bombing campaign continued for 11 days, only pausing on Christmas. 15 B-52s and 11 other American aircraft had been downed. North Vietnam claimed over 1,600 civilians were killed. Towards the end of December 1972, the North Vietnamese finally came back to the table. And the fact of the matter is they were suffering enormous casualties, losing far more men than the United States or South Vietnam. You know, there hundreds of thousands killed and terrible condition for the people in their country. Last few days, they were just no SAMs because they had run out. The air raid the sirens would go off during the day and the guards, were, you could hear them moan and groan uh, around, the, around the prison. They, they didn't even want to go man their guns anymore. They'd had it. Mm-hmm. So when the bombing stopped, we knew that was it. We knew when the bombers quit coming, the end would be near. I started to, to become optimistic again about myself, my future. In January of 1973, the Paris Peace Accords were assigned. Good evening. I have asked for this radio and television time tonight for the purpose of announcing that we today have concluded an agreement to end the war and bring peace with honor in Vietnam. Within 60 days from this Saturday, all Americans held prisoners of war throughout Indochina will be released. After eight and a half years, all the hope, all the endurance was finally about to pay off. The American POWs were coming home. In this recorded White House phone call from January 2nd, 1973, just one month before the POW rescue mission, former President Johnson calls President Nixon to wish him a Happy New Year. Hello. President Johnson. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. How are you feeling? I feel pretty good. Oh, uh, well, by golly, uh, we think of you. Well, I just feel the torture you're going through on Vietnam. Yeah. I wish I could do something to help you. Don't you worry about it. It's going to come out all right. Yeah, it's going to come out all right. We, uh... Uh, these people are now coming back to the table We've in a very, uh, we think, constructive frame of mind. And they better. That's, uh, as you know, uh, I'm sure you feel the same way. We've got to get this finished in the right way and not the wrong way. That's what you did try to do. It's what I'm trying to do. You're doing it. Right. I just uh, wish for you the best yeah. here you can have. I, I appreciate it. All right. <laughs> well, it's good to talk to you and give our best to Lady Bird. And best wishes to you. Okay. Let me know if I can help you anyway. Two weeks later, Johnson would pass away from a heart attack. He would never see the men he sent to war come home. Towards the end, when uh, they were having early releases and they asked if I would go home if my my sister or my mother came with a delegation, I, I had, and I said no. They asked John McCain the same thing, and you know that became he became famous for that too. For Everett. After maintaining his honor all those years, he wasn't about to forego it and abandon his brothers just to go home a few months early. 
Operation Homecoming was really well planned. It was the first time anything of that nature. The organized plan to get the men home became known as Operation Homecoming. It would involve 54 C-141 missions flown from February 12th to April 14, 1973, freeing 591 POWs. The aircraft that took them home were called Freedom Birds. For 12 days, 12 nights, we had very little food, a lot of bombing, but when the bombing stopped, four days later, they called us all out into the courtyard. In, uh, in the courtyard there at the Hilton. And said, the Paris Peace Accords have been signed. And they said, you know, you'll be going home soon. They said, in the morning, you will be going out. And you'll be released in four groups. Next day was uh, February 12th, 1973. And that's the day we first walked out of the camp without bli being blindfolded and without being handcuffed. Even as we walked out of that camp, I was cynical, I guess by nature by that time. We got on the buses, rode on the way to the airport. They brought sandwiches out, but I didn't want to eat because in case we did go home, I wanted to be hungry. I didn't want to eat any more of this stuff. <laughs> they marched us and lined us up in, the, you know, in order of shoot down. I was first, myself and Bob Shoemaker. Yeah. next to each other. We walked to that line and, you know, the column of twos and the first 40 guys that were released. Then there was a big C-141. And the officer said, you know, just wait, patience, patience. They started calling out names and stepped forward. And I remember getting to the back of 141 and I looked up at uh, the ramp and we were going up and there was an Air Force nurse and she was beautiful. <laughs> I, I just looked at her. We sat down, and other people piled on and what have you. Everybody got low to the board, but here I am thinking, gee, something's going to happen. You know, they're, they're feeding us soft drinks, and, and uh, we're talking. We sat down, Bob and I sat next to each other, and I was nursing a, a Coke, a soft drink. The plane started taxiing. It was revving up at the end of the runway. And everybody started cheering and what have you. Uh, I didn't cheer, Bob didn't cheer. As we got airborne, I figured, okay. My cynicism went away. First time I felt really good about, about leaving. At that point, from then on, I never looked back and thought about it. I was always thinking forward and what's next in my, what's next in my life. And I, I took my Coke and I says, well, Bob, we made it. It was a great thrill. But there was no laughter on the C-41 until we leave North Vietnamese airspace. We had a G-jump on the aircraft, and that's when all the laughter starts, because we're out of North Vietnam. The POWs landed at Clark Air Base in the Philippines, and it was covered wall-to-wall -wall coverage on TV back here in the United States. They were showing it the when the plane 
left Vietnam and flew into Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. This, again, is Mike McDaniel, Red's oldest son. He was eight when his father left and a teenager when he returned. It was like four o'clock in the morning, East Coast time. And my mom comes in with his Polaroid camera, takes pictures of us all while we're still sleeping. It's the goofiest looking pictures. She wakes us up to all gather around the television to, to watch this. And I can, I can see that whole scene where you see this plane landing on the runway and you know your dad's in that airplane. Then it's taxiing down the tarmac and they bring out the, the stairs to come down. And we're all sitting on the floor. I can tell you exactly where we were all sitting. My mom's sitting on the floor right in front of the television. We're all surrounding her. Just this excitement. You know, your dad's on that airplane. They start coming off, and you see this guy. All you can see is from the, the chest down. And you can tell it's this tall, lanky guy. And you knew it was him. He's like, with there, And he's adjusting his belt buckle like you do in the Navy. You can see his hands, and my mom dissolves on the floor. I mean, she's just, just sobbing, tears. And I'm like, Mom, 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 not now, not now, you gotta watch this. So she didn't even see it. So she had to watch the rerun to see it again. But that's one of those memories we'll never forget. Seeing these men come off of those planes was extraordinary. And, and Nixon wrote in his memoirs a few years later, I've got a quote right here, he said, the scene at Clark Air Base was tremendously moving as one by one the men came down the ramp walking or hobbling on crutches, saluting the flag. Some made eloquent statements. Some fell to their knees to kiss the ground. These were no ordinary men. These were true heroes. We were three days in the Philippines with emergency medical treatment, able to call home. Got to talk to Mike and the children and, and, and my wife. Then he calls us on the phone the next day. That was wonderful. I mean, you know, now, now things are going to change, but you're so excited that he's coming home. So here we are talking to him on the phone, and you're talking to your dad who's been gone for almost seven years now. And here he is on the phone, larger than life, you know. I'm 10th grade at the time, and... One of my brothers and my, again, this was 70s. We were both big surfers. We had the long surfer hair. And one of our biggest concerns was, is he going to make us cut our hair? <laughs> we said, well, Dad, we, our, hair's, our hair's a little longer. And he said, and again, that's, that's how stupid our focus was. He says, he goes, you know, I don't care how long your hair is as long as you have good character. And we just looked at each other, yes. Mom, did you hear that? Mom, did you hear that? We landed. We were driven to the hospital at, at Clark. I stepped out of the car, and there's a huge bunch of people out there. And they were carrying these banners and these flags. And they, you know, all cheering when I stepped out of the car to go into the hospital. First thing, stripped all the clothes we had on, jumped in the shower, in a hot shower, and stayed there for about 30 minutes, I must say. Wash my hair, soap, shampoo, and, and then came out because by that time I was hungry. At Clark Air Base in the Philippines, Everett and the other POWs were debriefed and physically examined before being sent to a military hospital. 
I told him about the parasites and the worms and this and that. He said, well, let's let's put you on a bland diet here. I figured, okay, because, you know, I wanted steak and eggs, French fries. I wanted to. <laughs> uh, and so I said, well, okay, I, I, I waited so long, I guess I, wait, I can wait another couple of days. We went and sat down and, and started eating. Finished with my bland diet when I looked up. And here's another guy, a group of guys coming through the line, and they're eating hamburgers and eggs and steaks. I said, wait a minute. The, what, those, wait a minute. This is not going to work. The hell with the, the bland diet. We went in and got our <laughs> plate tray full of, I wanted a steak. I wanted well, three eggs, four eggs, French fries, toast, a milkshake. And I went through and I brought that in. The doctor said, you know, you shouldn't be eating that. And I said, excuse my French, bullshit. <laughs> you know, they sat and watched me as I scarfed it down. I scarfed it all down. And yeah. every meal thereafter, I scarfed it down. Somebody sneaked, went off to the PX store and brought some booze. And then somebody brought in some music. And I was a bachelor. And so here I am. And so I started really enjoying the party and so forth. After a day and then two days and then three days, guys are flying home. And people, apparently people said, where's Alvarez? What's wrong with him? How come he's not coming home? Well, I was killing myself partying. You know, we were <laughs> able to call. And, and yeah, we're fine, you know, fine. But... I, I was just uh, in no hurry. General Flynn finally called me. He says, people are asking for you, so you're going home. <laughs> I would like to say a word to some of the bravest people I have ever met. In his formal address signaling the peace agreement, President Nixon expressed admiration for the League of Wives, bringing international awareness to their heroic efforts. The wives the children, the families of our prisoners of war and of the missing in action. When others called on us to settle on any terms, you had the courage to stand for the right kind of peace. Nothing means more to me at this moment than the fact that your long vigil is coming to an end. Here again is Andrea Rander, active member of the League of Wives, and the spouse to Donald Rander, an Army serviceman who endured many years as a POW. It was announced that all of the prisoners would be released. We were all praying that our men would be coming home safely. And all we could do was deal with the anticipation. Now, this was really exciting. During his captivity, I never received word from him. At the end, the captors allowed those who were leaving to take letters to give to the wives and families of those who had not been released. So I received a letter from, from Donald. It was a wonderful love letter, um, almost as if he hadn't been through those five years. It was incredible. And, and reading that letter, it gave me, you know, getting prepared for him to arrive was going to be the best thing that was ever going to happen in my life. We were given um, the instructions on what to do, where to go, what time to be there. So I was trying to prepare the children, and I tried to explain to them, you know, life is changing. Girls, you've been with your mom for five years plus. 
and dad's going to enter the picture now and we're going to be a family again and you're going to have to adjust to that. The reunification reunion was going to happen at the hospital up in, in uh, Pennsylvania and so um, that's where we met him. So then what was the moment like seeing him for the first time again? Unbelievable. It was a wonderful reunion, a day that I'll never forget, with the children there, and I think they were in disbelief in seeing their dad. On the uh, fourth day, we flew back to the U.S. into our home base where I met Dorothy and the children. What was it like seeing your kids six years later? Just great joy. One of the greatest days of my life. I still remember like it was yesterday. It's like a videotape in my mind. I can see it. I can see the car knowing your dad's in that sedan. And it pulls up in front of the hospital. We're all there. The big commander, Atlantic Fleet, is there. It's kind of a big deal. All the media is there. And here, this limousine is kind of like a good slow motion in my mind. It comes and pulls up. That door opens. And there he is. Larger than life in his khakis. Oh, it was the greatest, greatest moment. I'll never forget. He comes in, he grabs my mom, sweeps my sister up in her arms, and we all just kind of had this kind of group hug. The wife had done a great job, and the kids were all very normal. It was a very easy reunion because she had done such a good job keeping my name before the kids and answering all their questions, when's dad coming home, over and over. And I think our family is much stronger because of that experience. They all, even though it was a tough six years, there's things to be said about the strength that we have as a family now. In the six years since Don had last been home, Andrea, like many of the POW and MIA wives, had grown into her own independence. You know, I really was an independent woman who didn't realize she was independent. I had done all of these things on my own, thinking that this is what I have to do. It's just you do what you need to do in life, and then you take it from there. And that must have been my whole philosophy at the time. So, yes, I felt this independence, but I also felt that in getting back into a marriage and reality setting in, things were going to be a little bit different, and I had to, I had to adjust to that. But the fact that he had gone through what he went through, he didn't think I understood what he went through, and he definitely didn't understand what I had gone through, to a degree. We tried to make the best of our marriage, and we tried very hard. And sometimes things just don't work out. The only thing that I ever got out of him is because the only reason he was divorcing me is because he loved me. But we, we, we both became very proud of each other. The POWs returning home during what they called Operation Homecoming 
was really, for a lot of Americans, the end of the war. That was the symbol. That was the moment that the Vietnam War ended. When they saw American POWs walk off those aircraft and finally return to America, that was the moment that everybody appreciated. Everybody felt this, this spark of national unity. And everyone felt some degree of closure around the conflict in Vietnam. Unlike Red and Donald, Everett no longer had a wife to come home to. His young wife, Tanji, had left him during his captivity. But Everett didn't let that crush his spirit. It really wasn't hard to come home. The only thing that was hard is how we were, I was thrust into being an instant celebrity. The media, instant celebrity status. And I had never, I never anticipated it. I didn't know how to handle it. And I didn't know. I just didn't know. It took me years to get used to it. I shied away from the notoriety. I met my wife, uh, which we met March 30th. I came home February to the States February 16th. Let me tell you, my wife was most helpful. I mean, I don't know where I'd be without her. I felt I've, I met somebody with, uh, who was a genuine person. I'm not saying the others weren't but they never met, measured up to what this one, my wife is. She, she, she's just an honest, genuine, good person with strong values, and they matched mine, and I knew right off the bat, you know. Our first date was at the White House dinner, May, May the 24th. After they got home, you know, the, the president was trying to figure out, you know, what can we do to salute these men who had endured so much, came home with honor. It was a very, very important thing for the president that these men had endured and kept faith in what he was trying to do. Sammy Davis Jr., of all people, was at a, uh, was entertaining after a state dinner at the White House. And he had suggested to the president, he would say, you cats ought to have a dinner for these guys. The Nixons decided, yeah, we're going to have a dinner for these men and their wives or dates. On May 24th, 1973, the largest dinner in White House history was held. 1,300 guests at a formal sit-down dinner. The sheer size of this event has made it necessary to move outdoors under this giant tent erected here on the South Lawn. The tent is longer and wider than the White House itself. Inside are 126 round tables where the former prisoners, their ladies and government dignitaries will dine and watch the show. There was never a dinner that big before or since at the White House. Still holds the record. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are at the White House, the big tent with all the POWs. And here's one of our great POWs from Illinois and California, Admiral Stockton. Thank you, Mr. Hope. Well, of course, I am thrilled to be here as a guest of President Mrs. Nixon, and I'm sure I speak for all of the prisoners of war in saying that this is probably one of the highlights of our lives. Coming to the White House for a dinner with President Nixon was a very high-level recognition of what they'd been through and that America appreciated them and truly welcome them home. Good evening. I'm Tom Jarrell, ABC News White House correspondent. Men who live for years in harsh prison conditions are tonight here with their ladies being given the best the White House has to offer in food, elegance, music, and entertainment. 
The performers are all donating their time and their talents for this occasion. Such varied talents as the new Christie minstrels, Joey Heatherton, Vic Damone, Roy Acuff, Sammy Davis Jr., with special guest appearances by such Hollywood celebrities as John Wayne, Phyllis Diller, Irving Berlin, Ricardo Montalban, and Jimmy Stewart. Most notable is Bob Hope, a Christmas time entertainer of GIs for as long as I can remember. I don't have to tell you, this is the biggest thrill for anybody in show business to be introduced by the president. The second biggest thrill is a date with Henry Kissinger. It's a beautiful setting. I gotta work fast because Ringling Brothers wants this tent back by midnight. But I'm thrilled to be here with you guys. This is what I like, a captive audience. The normal custom at a White House dinner, as you know, is for a receiving line. And we considered that. But then I timed that out. <laughs> to the extent that time permits, I would like to meet those of you who are here. Uh, I would like to meet as many of you as I possibly can. So if you have the time, I have the time. Just remember, we must get through in time for dinner. I think he also very much admired what they had been through. You know, and, and for him, he was bringing home his soldiers and, and getting to shake their hands, looking into the eyes of the people that had been through so much for their country and, and for each other, frankly. It took some time, but true to his word, the president greeted all of the POWs who had lined up to shake his hand, one by one. He also had some words personally for both Everett and Red. We walked, you know, we were in line, and he was greeting each one, and then when my turn came, he sh I shook his hand, and I remember he looking at me, and then he felt me up and down, you know, my shoulders, my arms. He said, you look to be in good shape. The way I remember it is, he said, I want you to know, I tried, I really tried. And so when he said that, I took that as that he tried to end it sooner. He, and he did all he could to get us out. That's how I took what he meant to say. All I said was thank you. Uh, Nixon said to me, he said, are you as tough as they say you are? The leaders had told him about my story. And he said, Red, are you as tough as they say you are? And I don't remember what my response was. Knowing Red, he probably said no, always with humility. He probably said it was the strength of his fellow POWs that pulled him through. The POWs, when they came back, they said one of the things they missed most was kind of like just a regular good old American dinner. That's what they served them, you know, nothing fancy. Roast beef, vegetables, potatoes, something called seafood Neptune, which had, you know, some shrimp and some scallops and things like that. And, you know, nice strawberries and stuff for dessert. They borrowed canoes from the Pentagon to fill them with ice to keep the champagne cold. <laughs> this next fella acts, sings, dances, does impressions, plays the drums. Ladies and gentlemen, my favorite show-off, Sammy Davis Jr., right here. <laughs> I would just like to say that it is the greatest, really, the greatest thrill of my life. This is something very special for me tonight. Chain, 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 chain. Who can take a sunrise, sprinkle it with you? 
call for it for chocolate or a miracle or two. The candy man, the candy man can. The president gave a toast. Well, gentlemen, as you can imagine, during my term as president of the United States and also before that as vice president and other offices, I have spoken to many distinguished audiences. I can say to you today that this is the most distinguished group I've ever addressed, and I've never been prouder than I am at this moment to address this group. And he gave a toast to the, the wives of the POWs. I remember that first Christmas in 69. I met with a group of the representatives of the League of Families down in the library. And I talked to these wonderful, remarkable women. And I saw their faith and their courage and their love of country. And I heard them tell me that their husbands had not gone to Vietnam simply for the purpose of getting back. He saluted them and said he was going to declare every one of them one of America's first ladies for that night. And they gave a plaque to the president that said, our leader, our comrade, Richard the Lionhearted. Nixon's opened the White House to the POWs and their spouses or guests. The whole thing, that not just the ground floor and the state floor, but also the second floor where the family lives. Just a great evening for the POWs, giving the run of the house. There was dancing provided all the way up until 4 o'clock in the morning in the East Room by different service bands from, you know, Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, etc. The servicemen saying their good nights here is well past the Nixon's bedtime, and they're saying their good nights and will be retiring soon. He wrote in his memoirs in 1978, this was one of the greatest nights of my life. There were no words that could describe the joy and satisfaction that I felt at the thought that I had played a role in bringing these men back home. On May 24th, 2023, 50 years to the day, the dinner, down to the menu, was recreated at the Nixon Presidential Library welcoming as many living POWs and their families as possible. We will feature content from that dinner in a coming bonus episode. The extraordinary thing is that after all those years, up to eight and a half years for Ev Alvarez, for example, the POWs persevered, always knowing that it was going to be really difficult. The next day was going to be hard, the day after that was going to be hard, and the week after that was going to be hard. But they never gave up hope that they'd ultimately return home with honor at the end of the day. Unfortunately for them, it just took a long time for the end of the day to arrive. In February and March of 1973, the POWs returned home exactly as they always had aspired. They returned home with honor. When I lost my youngest adult son, I had two boys, he was 29. My other son, you know, is, is about a year and a half older, loved each other, best friends. And obviously it's devastating to lose a child as a, as a parent. But my son was devastated, you know, he was crushed. And I, I remember thinking, you know, he needs to hear my dad's story again. Two days after my son had passed, and I said, Dad, I need you to, uh, to talk to Michael and kind of give him your life's message. And one of, the, one of the treasures of that time for me was um, my dad says these words to him. He says, Michael, this is a tragedy. It's a tragic loss, and I know it hurts, 
and I wish I could take that all away, but I can't. But let me tell you something, young man, he said. I can't tell you how or when, but sometime in your years ahead, you'll see the good that will come out of this in the lives of encouraging others. Tragedy is not the pain that we go through. The tragedy is the waste of the pain that we experience. Here we are seven years later after my son's passing, and my son and I, my oldest son, and I, we, we reflect on that and making sure that the tragedy is not wasting the pain, as my dad said. So here he is, 91 years old, and he actually had a heart attack back in October. He's recovering well and everything is looking good, but uh, we realize he's not invincible after all. We had a good report from the cardiologist a couple weeks ago and told him he could put his Superman t-shirt back on. As you go through life, everybody has adversity. It's how you handle that adversity. What you have to do is learn how to dance in the rain. It's when you get through that adversity, if you gain something from it, you're a stronger person. But if you don't, it's a, it's a waste. It's just a loss. I learned very early on that courage is not the absence of fear. It's simply the presence of faith. And that was the thing that enabled me to survive. Everett, too, held close to the values that enabled him to survive and hold his head high. He never sacrificed his honor, nor his sense of duty, which he would have seen as a betrayal to his country, not even to come home early. It was the first thing he emphasized to his family when they finally reunited. I wanted to come home with my self-respect, and I wanted to come home with my personal integrity. I wanted people to, to look at me, and, and I wanted to not be ashamed for what I did. When I came home, and the first thing I said to my father, I said, you know, Dad, it's possible. It's possible that they would have let me go had I done certain things. They could, I could have come home earlier. I said, but if I had, I, I says, uh, you would not be proud of me. And, you know, I don't know why I said that. For some reason, that meant a lot. What did he say? He didn't say anything. He just hugged me. Everett, now 85, and Red, now 91, went on to have full, healthy, and happy lives with wives to whom they are both still married and many precious kids and grandkids. It's been five decades since the men were released from North Vietnamese captivity, but the lessons these heroes can teach us about endurance, self-sacrifice, duty, and hope remain as important as ever today. Their bodies may have been captured and tortured, but their hearts were unbroken. 
Not everyone's story had a happy ending. At least 141 POW servicemen lost their lives, and many more are still accounted for as MIAs. As it says on the Vietnam POW flag that still flies today, 50 years later, you are not forgotten. After captivity, Everett and Red earned many decorations and military awards. To name a few, they received Legions of Merit, two Purple Hearts each, and the Distinguished Flying Cross for acts of heroism while participating in aerial flight. Despite everything they had endured in the service of their country, Everett and Red remained in the Navy for years. Retiring from the Navy in 1980 as Commander Alvarez, Everett earned a master's degree and went on to serve in public life for decades as a leader in the Peace Corps, VA, and many more organizations. He was recently nominated for the Congressional Medal of Honor and remains married to Tammy, the woman he met just two weeks after coming home. A high school in Everett's native Salinas, California was named in his honor. The mascot of Everett Alvarez High School, an eagle, a gold and navy blue eagle. And Captain McDaniel, Red, resumed duty as commanding officer of the USS Niagara Falls and later the USS Lexington. Before his retirement in 1982, he served as a naval liaison to the US House of Representatives, working closely with congressmen on national defense planning and consulting on naval strategy. His son Mike would also go on to be a Navy captain. Red later founded the nonprofit American Defense Institute and continues to share his experiences in captivity and beyond on speaking tours across the country. Thank you sincerely for listening to our docu-series. It has been a great honor and privilege to share this story with you. Captured, Shot Down in Vietnam is a docu-series from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Foundation, produced by the team at Foundwave and respectfully created in honor of Ross Perot Sr. If you're interested in learning more about Vietnam POWs, you can visit the exhibition Captured at the Nixon Library in Yorba Linda, California. Original music compositions, Foley effects, and mastering from Jonathan Rock. Produced and edited by Steph Weaver-Weinberg. Research, background, and history from Jason Schwartz. Executive production from Joe Lopez and the team at the Richard Nixon Foundation and Kaylee Mason from Perot Family Collections. Co-executive production, interviewing, and hosting from me, Tyler Russell McCusker. Find future episodes of this show and bonus content, including archival photos and audio at capturedpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our production, please consider leaving a review and clicking follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 